0: cliffcentral.com.
1: All right, it is time for The Burning Platform. This is our chance to catch up on all the important stories in South Africa and take a look at what we need to know from our politicians, from our business leaders, from the future, the past, all of these things hugely important. We're joined this morning by Anthea Jeffrey, who has uh, been working steadily and very hard in the background on this excellent book, which is called Countdown to Socialism. I mean, you've been watching what's been happening in the ANC, as many of us have, I know Pumi has, for years. But it's, it's fascinating to me that so many people do not know anything about those three letters, NDR. A lot of people in South Africa go, what's the NDR, is that a, uh, 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 is that a political party? Right, am I right, Does am it I have right, something
2: Pumi? to do with Ngoza Zanazumi? Yeah, does
1: it have something to do with NDZ, for example? <laughs> yeah, that's what people want to know. So in this book, Anthea pretty much explains why we're in the situation we're in Um, unemployment infrastructure EWC the mining sector all of these things Anthea, you've looked at and you've pretty much written about why this has happened how it's happened and what the thinking behind it is now how much thinking is still going on in the ANC I don't know (laughs) but certainly in the beginning this was always the plan right
3: undoubtedly The the ANC has been committed to the NDR, the National Democratic Revolution, all the way back to the 1960s. And one might have thought that with the disbandment of the Soviet Union in 1991, shortly before our political transition, that would perhaps put an end to the NDR because it was a Moscow-inspired strategy to take a newly independent country from a primarily capitalist to a socialist and ultimately communist economy. And having, with the evident failure of the Soviet Union one would imagine that 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 would have been it that many people would have moved on from the socialist dream but uh, unfortunately not so and in South Africa itself in 1989 just after the Berlin Wall came down Joe Slovo who was then the chair of the South African Communist Party the SACP asked the key question has socialism failed Mm -hmm. And he came to the conclusion that it hadn't. (laughs) Why? Because it wasn't real socialism that had been implemented in the Soviet Union. Exactly. What had happened to, know, that what what Moscow had done had been all bureaucratic and commandist and had some negative consequences – But real socialism hadn't yet been tried. And this became a kind of trope in many countries around the world with many other socialist communist parties and left-leaning academics and commentators taking up the same view, that wherever socialism has been tried and has failed, that's simply because it's not real socialism, whereas we will get it right. And so that remains the goal. And the NDR is seen as offering the most direct route to get there.
1: Why this preoccupation with Socialism and communism among those coteries that you've just described, the, the, the academics, the left-wing politicians, these idealists. Why that, first of all? And second of all, is there still a hysteria around this too, an overreaction from people who are worried about communism? Because I hear that often. I hear people, oh, why are you worried about communism? That's a thing that's over. Um, and, and yet there is evidence all around us that it is not over. And you find these people using that as a convenient sort of cop-out to get you to stop talking about it because it's actually something that they're still flirting with. Mm -hmm.
3: I think that's very so. Um, And why the appeal to intellectuals? It's not something that I've ever really been able to understand. Friedrich Hayek wrote the book, The Fatal Conceit, many years ago. Why it appeals to politicians, I think, is clear to see because at the end of the day, if you have a socialist government with control over the economy – Uh, It's the main employer, it's the main landlord, it's the main facilitator of, of any kind of financial help or banking. It has a level of power that we can't imagine when we're in a primarily capitalist world. Because at the moment, you know, there's a whole lot of entities and agencies involved in providing services like that. So having acquired this extraordinary degree of power, that does two things to the small elite up at the top. It makes them feel obviously, is that, that they have power of an unprecedented level and they can start diverting resources to the benefit of the party, to the benefit of themselves. So it's extraordinary wealth as well. And
1: even if they're, even if they're idealists and, and have some utopian idea, um, they, they think they can socially engineer things as well. And they're doing this all for the benefit of the people. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. it comes from this idea that deep down inside they're tremendously noble.
3: Yes, indeed. And And they they can feed the fantasy that they're doing a truly noble thing for the benefit of the people, even as their power and wealth endlessly expands. And the poverty in which the uh, great mass of people is living, unfortunately, gets very much worse.
2: And, you know, you talk about Joe Slovo, but I think one of the things that we don't talk enough about is the influence of the Communist Party over The ANC, which is primarily from its inception a nationalist party. And you also spoke about how it really from the 1960s, Mm. which was the reason for the breakaway that created the PAC, is really this influence of the Communist Party. Exactly. Do you think that the Communist Party in South Africa today still has that kind of its tentacles deep in the ANC? You know, we know Pravin Gordon comes from the. The Communist Party and still quite a lot of influential politicians within the the party, come from the communist uh, angle. Do you think that they have that louder voice over what we call our billionaire president?
3: Yes, indeed. <laughs> and um, who I obviously think...
2: cannot be a communist <laughs>
3: obviously.
1: yes, well, very wonders. few, but very few Could communists just... are actually. Communists, they, 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 the they practice, they they practice capitalism the in their own world, but in the outside world, they they pretend communists. They wear yes. their socks.
3: I, just to you know, no. one of the things that happened in Venezuela when it embraced 21st century socialism was that Hugo Chavez became one of the 400th wealthiest people in the world according to Forbes. But to come back to the influence of of the SACP, absolutely, um, I think that you can see it, for example, in from 2017 when the SACP held their Congress in July and then the ANC held their Congress in December. And the things that the SACP said were important, we have to amend the Competition Amendment Act, for example, Mm -hmm. were then taken up by the ANC and then they were written into the law. The things that the SACP also wanted, the National Minimum Wage Act, uh, and then this was also embraced by the ANC and then it was written into the law. This was seen by the Communist Party as as the precursor to a living wage, which is not just a higher wage. It also means, for example, that you must have something like the NHI. We find the ANC embracing that idea, um, and it's now also being written into the law.
1: Isn't it also true that the ANC really didn't have any ideas of their own for a long time, and the Communist Party formed the brains trust of the ANC in some ways?
3: I think that's absolutely so, and um, Pumi's right to to go back even before the 1960s, the Freedom Charter, though we are often told that it was drawn up you know, by the masses of South Africans <laughs> and a completely you know, spontaneous process, uh, seems rather to have been drawn up primarily by closet members of the SACP, um, which had recently been banned. And when the ANC adopted it, it was indeed the reason why people broke away to form the Pan-Africanist Congress, because they felt that the ANC's embrace of the Freedom Charter now gave the SACP too much influence Mm. over the organization. Mm. And if you look at the SACP documents, they also say that it's vital that we implement the Freedom Charter, because that is the essential foundation for the shift to socialism. So they weren't in any, in, in any doubt about why they wanted well, the Freedom Charter their word. and why right. they wanted the ANC to embrace it. And ever since uh, then in 1962, they specifically embraced the NDR, the, the SACP, um, in their program in that year. And in 1969 at the Moragora Conference, the ANC then followed suit mm. and has been implementing the NDR from the moment it acquired state power in 1994, which it very much did with the help of the SACP, mm-hmm. because the SACP uh, and Moscow were really the main authors of the People's War strategy that was used to weaken and as far as possible eliminate the ANC's black rivals, and so give it an untrammeled level of power over the new South Africa that could be used to uh, advance the second stage of the revolution, which is the NDR.
2: So, But if we look at it, if we place it in a global context, where really the only ones that are left standing with some form of communism is China, which even they have a much watered down <laughs> version of what communism or socialism is about. I mean, I think a couple of weeks ago, actually, with the, the, the their new plan going into the future of uh, prosperity, you know, kind of... I, I, I'm failing to think about the exact words that they're calling this new plan of theirs. The Chinese, China. yeah, yeah, the Chinese. I'll remember it.
1: Not Belt and Road, because that's what they're <laughs> always talking. About.
2: No, no, no. But it it really is more about a I controlled think it's shared prosperity, or something, something like of like that, that nature. Yeah, it is when you look at it and place it in a global context. We were just talking about the level of homelessness in America. People working seven days a week and still not being able to afford. Healthcare, afford a home to live in, all of that kind of stuff. If you place it in a global context where people are becoming poorer everywhere, and China seems to seems to have some kind of thing that is working right at the moment, does that then not give more impetus to people within, you know, decision making structures of the ANC to say, well, maybe we should be looking more to the East rather than the West, in terms of how we're going to solve our problem, societal problems.
3: Mm. Um, yes, of course. South Africa undoubtedly looks very much to the East at the moment, uh, to Russia as well, as we know, and to China. But the, the China's economic miracle really has been an extraordinary thing, from the, the days of the Cultural Revolution to where uh, Really, it was Deng Xiaoping recognized that it wasn't working, and you had to do something different. You needed to attract investment. It was, to some degree, I would say, a variation on Lenin's new economic policy, as adopted in in. Um, Nineteen twenty-one mm. in the Soviet Union, when the Soviet Union was really struggling, and uh, the idea was really to encourage investment to come in to a, a large degree of economic freedom that hadn't been permitted before, even to the point where where people could now start to own property, mm. uh, and hugely successful in ra- in raising the the uh, the level of wealth within the country.
1: Mm. Yeah, so let's be clear. But not, on the not, other hand, not communism, but a, a, a kind of a a, a state flexibility. capitalism in a way, state, state. Yeah. corporatism. Yes, it's yeah.
3: socialism with Chinese characteristics, <laughs> they put it, in which <laughs> there's still a huge it. amount of state control, which um, is why
2: people can disappear.
3: Indeed, no. and also why, uh, and why you've some can had become billionaires. such an emphasis on, you know it's yeah, such a control of the Western com- companies coming in that they have to give up so much of their intellectual property for example that's part of the condition of doing business in China it's all been intended to position China to become politically and militarily much stronger mm-hmm. and now that, that we're getting closer to what the Chinese identify 2049 as, as the key date in which they they must become the new hegemon. I think you also are beginning to see implemented by Xi Jinping a greater degree of Communist Party control as well. The the, the cells which have always operated in in companies in China, supposedly private companies, mm. are, are are being told to increase their influence. Mm. One wonders how many cadres they have deployed mm. Um, mm. and how many of of the senior you know, leadership in in many of of. Of companies which look independent on the outside are, are actually also as no, well, But I'm not an expert we, in this area. You know, but who, I think is what we do see is South South Africa having had this determination to embrace socialism mm-hmm. for many decades, getting the chance to do it from 1994 with the uh, taking of state power, and. Um, it's, it's absolute determination to pursue it, right. even though the consequence at this point is a great deal of suffering for the people of South Africa economically and in other ways.
1: So, so are, they, are they not hiding the ball here? Because the NDR is something that is – you can read about this. There are, they're publishing their own manifesto, and the NDR is the central linchpin in most of it anyway. So it's not being hidden. Why no. are people so unaware of it? What is the NDR for people who are completely flabbergasted now? They're listening to you going, my God, Anthea <laughs> Jeffrey, what have you uncovered here? With your, you know, you've, been, you've been sitting in dark rooms late at night talking to people who are smoking cigars and, and hiding away. Um, are, are, why are people so surprised that this is happening? And what can you tell us about, first of all, what it is, and second of all, how it's come about and manifested itself in our economy
3: and in our society. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Just, so what is it? Yeah. As you could summarize it as a Moscow-inspired strategy to take a newly independent country from capitalism to socialism by incremental steps and over a period of time. Uh, sometimes you can do it pretty quickly. Uh, And it was done pretty quickly, for example, in a country like Indonesia, also Mozambique. Sometimes you have to be much slower. And why why is that? Because there are times when it wasn't the Communist Party alone in the particular country Mm. that drove the process to independence. Mm. There were national organizations involved too. And then uh, there's not much support for communism in that country. And it has to be a slow process. And what you particularly need to do is gradually cripple the capitalist economy so that it's not functioning well at all. And at the same time, keep putting forward the solution as more government control and more dependency on the state. So um, if there now aren't enough jobs, partly because you've so priced the inexperienced, unskilled youth out of work, well, then you will say, but but the state can offer you work. And increasing the amount of public employment is now a big strategy of the ANC. Mm -hmm. They say it's the only solution. Yeah, indeed. Every week. <laughs> yes. And permanent jobs, not not just temporary stopgaps. Permanent jobs with decent wages that are going to cost 200 billion or so to, to fund at the beginning. Um, and the idea is as you cripple the economy and you expand state control and the dependency of the people on the state for their core needs. You can finally get to the point where you've entirely de-linked people from the capitalist economy. They are now entirely dependent on the state. So all education is run by the state, nothing private. All healthcare is controlled by the state. Private sector resources may be used by the state, but there's no autonomy on the part of the private sector. The state decides. And that we see with the NHI. And the same with pensions. Um, And at the end of it is that Property, of course, must increasingly move into state control, if not ownership, so custodianship, Mm -hmm. if not ownership. And so, in the end, there is none of that capacity for economic independence, which is vital also to political independence.
2: And, you know, in South Africa, we have a um, particularly interesting world in that we have this huge dichotomy and the pull of private sector because, you know, taking away, crippling a private sector so that there's more and more state control has a level of acquiescence from the private players too. But what we have here, and we saw this three weeks ago with 115 private companies signing up to help government, you know, to say, we're going to help government <laughs> try and like f- deliver the services, fix where they can, or where you have people like... um Discoveries, Adrian, go very vocal in favor of something like the NHI, you know. Does this mean that our private companies, in your view, are very much part of this countdown and they're happy to hurtle down to As long
3: as they get eaten last. You know? <laughs> Perhaps, but I think really they don't understand the ANSI's perspective on the disciplining of capital. In other words, I um, <laughs> don't have a chapter on it, that they are very well aware of the resources that the private sector controls. And those resources are enormous. Just take pensions at 6.9 trillion overall, about 4.5 trillion or so as private pensions. Um, And they want to be able to control those resources and bend them to the use of the revolution. Um, And their propaganda, of course, is useful to that purpose because you don't ever tell business what it is that you're seeking to achieve. they also very well have of how they can use their state power to encourage this process. So they talk about using legislation, regulation, public-private partnerships, and if need be, outright expropriation and confiscation. Um, So the private sector may not be reading this kind of material and fully aware of it. But I think what they are fully aware of is what the government has already done to increase regulation over business. And a lot of it has been done under the rubric of BEE, um, which means that that businesses, knowing how difficult it is to comply with BEE, are are slightly anxious about not being in the government's bad books. um, Because if if you irritate the state, they can come and look very closely at whether your BEE deal is sufficient, what your score is, and you can always be excluded from contracts or permits or other things. So I think sometimes there's also just a straight naivete that there's an, a failure to understand that, that the ANC, SSE, PC's Business, as the main enemy of the NDR, is determined, therefore, to take control of its resources, bend them to the the purposes of the revolution, use them, use its state power in order to achieve that, (laughs) and ultimately, as you were saying, sort of eat them last. (laughs) (laughs) But when you
2: consider that, one of the things that we look at in South Africa, with almost all our legislation, with the way that our state-owned enterprises are run and constructed – it is not without the hand of many multinational consultancies, a la Bain, McKinsey, and those guys. You know, so are you saying that those guys also have very similar kind of um, yearnings to because? That's who helped shape all of these kinds of, even the way that the BE regulations are constructed. You know, lots of consultants came in and multinational consultants. NHI is not new and unique to South Africa. It's based very much on a model in the UK. So are those guys also pushing a socialist NDR agenda?
3: I think in many countries in the world, not necessarily the businesses, let me come back to that, but I do think in many countries in the world, over the last 30 years, since the Soviet Union was disbanded, people have forgotten about the 100 million deaths that were recorded in the Black Book of Communism in 1999. Many of them in the Soviet Union, even more of them in China, also in Cambodia, Vietnam, Cuba, you name it, altogether 100 million deaths. But the knowledge of all that repression has faded. I think people growing up now are much more aware of Nazi death camps than they are of the Gulag. And so um, it's no, been absolutely. possible.
2: Lots of histories is revised.
3: For all the socialist communist parties that remained, and there are lots of them belonging to the Socialist International, they get together to plan. The elect, leaning act- activists, academics, commentators, have, have really... Uh, Yeah, media have have switched to a different sort of socialism. They often talk about it as socialism is all about human rights, the right to education, the right to health. This is what Harney himself said in the the, the early 1990s. And they are, are trying to achieve it more by Gramscian means. In other words, that you infiltrate the institutions, you start breaking down the core institutions that have underpinned the capitalist system from the family through to the church, um, and you must very much have an influence in the universities and the media. Um, and I think you know, ideas doubt, which promote happened. In yes. America, that's happened without a doubt.
1: I don't think anyone, unless they're completely blinkered and or willingly ignorant, would we'll, we'll look at the U.S. That. academic situation at the moment and not say, that this has been captured
3: by leftists. Exactly. And increasingly now we see much more emphasis on critical race theory mm. and the idea that the society is always divided into these oppressive but, victim groups, etc. And all of this is useful to the ANC back
1: here. But I don't
3: want us to go down a conspiratorial path. But on the other the, I okay. want to hear the yeah. end
2: of this. Right.
3: Um, so I, I think it's, it's just possible that with the Soviet no long, Union no longer there as a sort of – Terrible example of repression, and with China having gone this route, the sort of new economic policy route, the, the, the horrors of of socialism are far less evident. There's a great deal of, um, I would call it propaganda, which is anti capitalist. Uh, Many young people, I think, are disillusioned with capitalism, which is less able to meet needs for housing and so on, partly because the prices of assets have been so pushed up by the kind of uh, money creation that we've had for decades now. Mm -hmm. And um, socialism, at the same time, has given a pretty good press uh, where you do hear people saying, what we need is for the state to be providing more for citizens.
1: We saw it during covid yeah, the state will help you, the state will look after you, which leads me to my question. The ANC, bring it back home, is hopelessly incompetent. Everything they do, they do badly. There's not an example I can think of of where they've successfully achieved even their own goals, misplaced as some of those goals might be. So how worried should we be about the NDR when
3: these guys can't organize a piss-up in a brewery? The trouble is it's quite easy to pass a law. And the laws are are very destructive. And the laws, um, business will certainly be keen to implement them, as as you mentioned, in the case of the NHI. So… And you, and you don't need a high level of efficiency. This this isn't the basis on which a socialist society is judged. Uh, if you think of, of again, of, of Venezuela, which is a country perhaps in some ways similar to South Africa, it was wealthy, fairly developed economy, quite a diverse and complex economy. Um, and yet it has been absolutely impoverished through 21st century socialism, which hasn't improved efficiency in any way, um, which has left you the... Know, The country unable to provide electricity. Very often, water supply is failing. Food is no longer available. A lot of people are hungry and have lost lost weight. Hyperinflation has (coughs) wiped out savings. GDP has contracted by seventy percent. But the socialists, the yeah, the government is absolutely entrenched in power. Because they have also used that increasing economic power and the fact that people are now dependent on the state to benefit some and harm others. If you want to get ahead, you need to be on the government's side. Mm-hmm. Um, you can manage to bypass parliament. They packed the Supreme Court and with en- enlarged it, packed it. And so the, the checks and balances on executive power have also been diminished. And that sort of thing they are very efficient at. The fact that people struggle and suffer and that there's no... Okay. Efficiency and, and running electricity isn't doesn't matter.
2: And there yeah, but you know what we also see here in South Africa, speaking of the inefficiency of government, is we also see a very rapid selling off of state assets into private hands. Whether it is an SAA on the one hand, and today earlier we were just talking about um, the distribution power distribution plants being sold off by Pravin Gordon into what is essentially a PPP or if we talk about independent power producers and all of those licenses. So we see a lot of privatizing happening at the same time as you're talking about us having to worry about a countdown towards socialism. These two things look like they are on opposite ends of the scale.
3: I think it's still the disciplining of capital that we're seeing. In other words, you use the resources, but you don't give up the control. Um, I think the SAA is the only agreement not yet finalized that I'm aware of in which there's going to be a 51% stake going to, what's it, the Tocatso Consortium. Mm. Um, But one of the key players there is Jabu Maleketi, who is close to the ANC, probably Seem to be part of the SSCP General at some point. Husband. So is is this also a, a use of cadres, the sort of thing that China has done and and that Russia might have done when it privatized? Certainly, um, but it, it, much of those assets went to former members of the KGB, uh, who may still be quite sympathetic to the the, the the sort of grander Russia project that Putin's now implementing, but. but um, if you look at the the Transnet concessioning, uh, none of it has been on terms of the, the private sector so far has been able to cope with, except for the Durban Pier 2. But if you look at the details of that, it's and the government that will keep 51% and the Philippine company will get 49%. And they are very clear.
2: The Philippine company looking very much like a shell of a... Chinese company.
3: Yes, absolutely. (laughs) It could be. I haven't looked into it. But I think that that's the model. You'll use the public-private partnership. You'll give the private sector as much as 49%, but you you will generally keep control. If rarely you let it go up to 51%, you'll make sure that it's in safe hands. In other words, Probably cater hands, and at the end of the day, there is no intention to embark on privatisation. And that message comes quite clearly from David Masonda, our Deputy Minister of Finance, and others. Hmm. Um, so I don't think that we should see the fact that the private sector is being brought in as evidence that the ANC is now convinced that, uh, you know, that the NDR is perhaps a bit mistaken, capital should be allowed to thrive. The idea is that capital should be allowed to help. The NDR. Hmm.
2: So, okay, you've Hmm. created a a very bleak picture of um, not just the NDR, but socialism and and the ultimate communism. What about social democracy in places like
3: Germany? I think that's a very different thing. You have a level of economic freedom there, um, which is... Really you know, completely different from what you had in a truly socialist state, what you have in a country like Venezuela, which has now gone <coughs> excuse me, right to the bottom of the index of economic freedom. And <clears throat> the Nordic countries often, I think, also cited as evidence of sort of democratic socialism – But I think, again, there you have a level of of economic freedom in terms of entrepreneurship and and companies being able to function. You also have a very high level of taxation, which uh, runs from from the most wealthy to people that we might even regard as, as being in the lower middle class. They're all paying a very high level of tax. And this is used for a very generous welfare system but it's different from what is envisaged in a a socialist system.
1: And it's it's debatable whether or not that will be sustainable going forward with an aging population and no replacement. Yes. And immigration.
2: So then the question is, with all of the the research that you've done and all of the, the work of looking into not just this NDR, but what it looks like around the world, and what then, so, What is to be done and where to go to next? What then is to be done when on the one hand you see lots of young people looking at purely capitalist environments and feeling that they have failed or they fail to give a alternative solution. You know, when they look at working endless hours and still not being able to Cut the threshold in terms of what you are able to afford, particularly when it comes to basic needs. And on the other hand, you're looking at a completely inadequate state that cannot provide. What then is an alternative, particularly in a place like South Africa, where we have 30 million people living on less than 20 rand a day?
3: Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, let me, let me not go down the UK and other rabbit holes. Let me just focus on what can we do. I think the first thing we, we need to recognize is that the ANC is totally committed to this. Most people may not know about it, but it's their end Who's goal. P- Who's pushing it in the ANC? The SACP, the ANC leadership, which I think is very intertwined. I think it's probably quite opposite. People like Pravin
1: Gordon and. Yes, Akhiar. undoubtedly. Right. I saw SACP somebody in the leaders. comments
2: here talking about. Jacob Zuma being anti the NDR which is actually not true (laughs) because he was also a member of the Communist Party.
3: Exactly and he came in in 2009 and Mbeki was was pushed out because um, Mbeki had talked about concessioning, transnet etc. And he had talked about allowing more of a private uh, sector role in, in, in the building of ESCOM and they weren't ready to do that then. They thought that that he was missing the point. He had embraced gear because he wanted to keep us out of the clutches of the IMF, and a high level of debt at that point, he and so preserve the... We, we paid, paid off debt and we, gave them money. We paid down a lot of our debt. So we got to the point where the debt was only 26% of GDP. And that freed up resources for the grants and so on. But Mbeki's idea was not to jettison the NDR. It was to create space for the NDR by making sure we didn't come under structural adjustment at the hands of the IMF. But he certainly irritated the SACP and others at, at who, who thought that he had misread it that he was looking at the local balance of forces and not recognizing how far one could push. And so they pushed him out. They brought Jacob Zuma in because he promised that he would do the things that they wanted, including expropriation without compensation, which emerged in his period. And then he became an embarrassment because he was so obviously stealing and the Guptas were not uh, a good look in any way for the country. Um, And so... But Cyril Ramaphosa was brought in instead, and and really I think he was spun as a pragmatic businessman who could be relied on for business-friendly reforms. He himself (laughs) never said that. He talked about (laughs) New Dawn, and that terminology comes straight from Franklin Roosevelt, who was very statist in his orientation. And we have seen just recently that, that Ramaphosa expresses great support for the NDR at the SACP Congress last year. He said that the ANC would do all in its power to advance the NDR, which is the joint program of the ANC and the SACP and the reason for the existence of our alliance. So that's a very strong statement in support of the NDR. But it's not that, that Mr. Ramaphosa hasn't made such statements in the past as well. Uh, I think he's feeling more confident to to be more open, partly because the NDR is already far advanced, hard to roll it back, and partly because the global environment, which they constantly stand, is, is helpful too. So what can we do? First of all, blow the whistle on the NDR. Try to make people uh, have greater knowledge of it so that they feel less baffled about yeah. what the N.C. is doing and more forewarned about what lies ahead and so can be forearmed about how to stop it. And critically, we have an election in 2024 And if you look at the numbers from the 2019 election, we had 10 million people who voted for the ANC and 18 million eligible voters who didn't go to the polls at all. Mm -hmm. Either didn't register or, though registered, didn't turn out to vote. So, those 18 million potential swing voters is a very big pool of voters. And if they can be persuaded to vote for opposition parties, and we know now that there's the national convention next week with the DA, Action SA, the IFP, other organisations trying to get together to offer a better alternative for South Africa. And we can, I have no doubt, come with a better alternative. Um, The IR, for one, has a growth strategy um, in which we are going to be emphasising the need for growth, that's the fundamental, but also to to make it possible for all those who are suffering so badly to participate in a growing economy, which partly needs, obviously, we need to stop the, the, the labour laws which price people out of the market, and we need a much better model of empowerment that reaches down to the grassroots and gives people who have no hope of ever benefiting from BEE, but if anything, suffer from it because it deters investment, it reduces growth, it it, it limits it's the a, jobs. Uh, often a Trojan,
1: it's often a Trojan horse. I mean, it's just placing people who are close to the political bosses oh, yeah. in positions where they can act out the, the interests the of those people within private corporations. Yes.
2: I love hearing somebody else say, that they are almost, it's, it's a little bit, the number's grown a little bit. It's almost 25 million people that are available for us to mobilize to get to um, the polls. Mm. But then you wake up on last week Friday to the news that the DA and the ANC are the main signatories of a national coalition, kind of coming up with the National Coalition Act. And when you look at the...
3: No, I don't think so. I think that's where it's been spun, unfortunately, because many people will (coughs) think that's what they did. Um, But at this uh, uh, gathering last week, the the deputy president was putting forward the ANC's views, stressing the fact that we need to have a threshold so that in our portion proportional election system so that you have fewer small parties because mm. a coalition that has to include many 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 small parties is in probably inherently unstable and and there is validity in that and it's the reason why very many countries with uh, proportional representation systems do have a threshold, whether it's 1%, 2%, 5% in Germany. And the DA has the same idea, that unstable coalitions are going to be difficult and it knows that the ANC is, is raising the spectre of ungovernability. Um, if people do vote for not for it <laughs> and then we have to have a coalition government which will make the whole place It'll be utterly unstable. So the DA in a way is in a difficult position. It agrees that ...that there should be a threshold... ...and the smaller parties are absolutely... ...not in favour of that for obvious reasons... ...and then it is spun as an agreement... ...between the ANC and the and the DA... ...and showing how this two-nodding ...means that the DA is not really genuine... ...about wanting to go into a coalition... ...with the smaller parties... ...it's going to lead them down the garden path... ...and then betray them.
2: Why shouldn't we believe them? Look what they did to... Uh, Mampela Rampella.
3: <laughs> well, <as> I understand <laughs> it as I recall... Uh, she said that she was had to become a, a, uh, the president of the, of the DA, but she didn't want to become a member. And I think there was uh, a realization suddenly on the part of the DA that it would be a very awkward thing to be led by a person who didn't feel committed enough to the DA to become a member of it. Um, and so there was a parting of the ways, and there probably should have been a much more talking and working things out before the agreement was ever Jeez, reached. I
1: haven't heard the name Mampela Rampele for a long time. There's someone I'm kind of glad we've forgotten about.
2: No, you know, no, actually, that's not a good thing. It's <laughs> in the same way that we talk about a revising of history, the the problem that we have in South Africa is we have such short memories, or either we have such short memories or we're so busy being distracted by all of the smoke and mirrors in front of us that we forget things that are incredibly critical when making decisions and going forward and reading the tea leaves of what's happening in front of us, right? Because we forget, we've forgotten those things and we we shouldn't forget.
1: I want to, uh, unfortunately, I mean, have to draw this to a close, um, just to let everybody know, Anthea Jeffrey, of course, is the head of policy research at the Institute of Race Relations, the IRR. She's authored 11 books, including "BE Helping or Hurting, People's War, New Lights on the Struggle for South Africa, and a number of others. She's written extensively on things like property rights, land reform, the mining sector, which we discussed the other day, uh, and there's a whole thing we could unpack there too. I'm sorry that we've run out of time but I do need to get to the Cape Town mayor who wants to update us on what's going on over there. So thank you and well done on the book. I think everybody should read this. People should pay attention. This is what's really going on. It's not some conspiracy. It's not something that people can poo-poo and throw away and not pay attention to. It's happening whether we like it or not. And this this is the guiding light that everybody always wants to know what's the ANC on about. This is it. So look at the book. It's called Countdown to Socialism, the National democratic revolution in south africa since 1994 thank you anthea thank you what a pleasure to have you here okay yeah very very cool so i'm going to uh take us to the mayor of cape town now who i interviewed last night um i know it was a public holiday just hang on one second it was a public holiday but he um made time to speak to us about what's been going on in cape town and here it is a quick update for you with jordan hill lewis Jordan Hill Lewis is the mayor of Cape Town and um, just a couple of hours ago, day ago or so, uh, he said to the residents of Cape Town that uh, he's going to take in hand the ongoing acts of violence and intimidation perpetrated by taxi associations and um, put out a, a, a notice to everybody and has been in the news since then trying to deal with this problem. I welcome him to the show now. Jordan Hill Lewis, mayor of Cape Town. How are you, sir?
0: Gareth, uh, I want to be honest with you, it's been a, a stressful uh, week, but mm. I'm, I'm, I'm hanging in there. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, uh, what is the state of play at the moment? Um, Santaco obviously have, um, have reneged on what you thought was a deal. And it mm. seems to me that the people of Cape Town are, are getting a little bit more concerned than they were two days ago and, and before the weekend. Uh, it was a public holiday today, so uh, any, any changes in that today?
0: right now as as we are speaking uh, Santaco is is locked in an internal engagement. They have been for several hours. Uh, we are not part of that meeting and so we have no idea what their final decision is going to be. I think there is a reasonable risk that the strike will continue since they have not uh, extracted any concession uh, whatsoever and uh, and it has still only been about we're now approaching about thirty six hours without any incident on the roads. So uh, we will wait to hear, probably much later tonight, uh, just to remind viewers that the, the, the strike was supposed to end tonight and back to normal resumption of taxi service tomorrow. I think there is a reasonable risk, unfortunately, that it may continue uh, for, for a few days still.
1: Well, I am relieved to hear that there haven't been any incidents for some hours. But um, what is the what is the tally so far of the damage caused and the and the uh, the chaos that's been created by the strike since it began?
0: Twenty five uh, burnt out vehicles. Uh, one reasonably badly damaged, I would say, moderately damaged community clinic in Kailicha. Uh, we have had number of uh, cars uh, thrown with stones and unfortunately people injured in those uh, stoning attacks. We have sadly had uh, five people dying, including, uh, which has just been announced, a a British doctor who was a tourist trying to get to the airport and and sadly took a wrong turn uh, after Google uh, directed him away from the N2 because the N2 was blockaded. Uh, And, very very sadly and i i I, you know i I feel this one very personally one of our city of cape town law enforcement officers officer zanikayo quinana father of four 32 years old uh, was murdered this weekend by taxi rogues for businesses and for interrupted uh, lives uh, and difficulties so the cost gareth has been tremendous
1: I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, obviously, for for ordinary people in Cape Town who are not necessarily in the thick of things here, people are just trying to get to work. People are trying to get supplies into their stores. People who are trying to just live their lives. Uh, this yeah. has been uh, very annoying to to perhaps a little bit more than that. But clearly, I mean, I I, I can only say our sympathies go out to those who've who've had far more uh, devastating consequences. So, what is the what is the situation here? I mean, are while we being held hostage, and by we, I mean the people of South Africa, by the, the taxi bosses and the taxi associations, how much power do they have? How difficult is it to sit down in good faith with these people and negotiate things?
0: It's extremely difficult to sit down in, in good faith uh, and negotiate, trying to come up with a solution when you know that you, you really do feel, and this is why I, I use the word literal, not because anyone has held me up with a gun. Uh, mm. But you really do feel as though you have a gun to your head. Because if you don't agree, uh, or if you say no, that there's going to be another explosion uh, of of uh, of rogue violence outside uh, in the streets. And uh, so it has been extremely tough to to have any kind of good faith negotiation. And that's why we've drawn the line that we have drawn. Uh, in those in those circumstances, and, and the, the problem is it is a very powerful industry. They have a huge amount of influence, not just because of the uh, their, their threats, implicit threats of violence, but because of the number of people that they move around. And I'm glad that you asked that question, because their power would be diminished in South Africa if we had a functioning rail system. And I have not yet made this point publicly, but perhaps now is exactly the right time to do it. We would not have been in such a serious position if uh, the calls that I have made for the last two years, which have fallen on deaf ears, to to take over the metro rail system in Cape Town ourselves, had been mm. heeded, if we had a functioning train system in South Africa, the power of the the, the stranglehold that the taxi industry has a, over the economy would be diminished, and that would help in situations exactly like this.
1: So, Mayor, what? What do they want? I mean, what are they telling you that they want? And, and what do you suspect they really want? And I'm, I'm only asking th- that question in, in a sort of <laughs> fork tongue manner because sometimes people say that they want a certain thing, but they're actually asking for something else. And, and you did say it's hard to talk in good faith with these guys. So let me hear.
0: They, they have a complaint about the length of time that it takes to get new operating licenses and new routes approved. Uh, that's, that is a serious complaint. But really what it boils down to is the issue of impoundments. Uh, we have started in, I would say, the last year to much more energetically and vigorously enforce the law uh, that empowers us to impound vehicles for bad, bad road behavior, unsafe, reckless driving, uh, unroadworthy vehicles, and so on. So it is absolutely true that we are impounding more vigorously than, than we did previously. Uh, because we find that it is the only effective mechanism that we have, traffic fines are simply not effective as a mechanism to change driver behavior. And this is what this is all about. It's about changing driver and owner behavior to make it more safe. Uh, and, and we find that when you when you, have 50,000 uh, fines a month, very few of them get paid you then have to wait for uh, that person to get an arrest warrant and hope that you find them at a, at a traffic stop or a, a vehicle checkpoint. With the impoundment, if you see them driving on the wrong side of the road or driving uh, on the pedestrian sidewalk, uh, jumping a red light or whatever, there can be immediate consequences that makes that driver permanently reconsider whether that kind of behavior is wise. And it makes the owner of that taxi as well responsible for the for the conduct of his employee. Uh, So that is really a very powerful mechanism. And that's why we do it. And they wanted to stop. Now, it's very important to stress, we are not unique. This is a national piece of legislation that we that we are empowered to impound under. The difference is that we 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 have turned up the volume that is definitely uh, that is definitely true. We've turned up the volume. But it is not as though we are doing something that is not available to be done elsewhere. Uh, we are just using the power that the legislation gives us.
1: So w- what is the story about how you impounded a bunch of taxis because they had broken the rules and they blocked roads and done everything else during the course of the strike, which you're entitled to do as the city? And, yeah. and this minister of transport of ours, Cindy uh, Siwe Chikunga, has apparently said, no, no, they must be released and um, you're, you're outside of the scope of your, your, your authority here.
0: No, I'm afraid the the minister is not strangely familiar with the legislation. We are entirely within our rights to impound a vehicle that is a blockading a, a national highway. And she has no legal authority whatsoever to instruct us to release that vehicle. In fact, we do not even have the authority to instruct that vehicle to be released, because once it's booked into the pound that, and an offence notice has been issued, just like you and I, uh, Gareth, when we get a speeding fine, you have to make representations to the traffic court. It's not in the no. whim of some politician to to. It should never be in the uh, at the whim of some politician to remove that uh, that notice of offence. So, in fact, even when we book that vehicle into the pound, it then is handed over to the jurisdiction of the traffic court. And here's a critical point that I made to the minister: if the person challenges the validity of the of the impoundment, they are welcome to challenge it in court. There is legal recourse. They have never once done that. That is a critical point to make. They have never once used their legal recourse to challenge the validity of the impoundment. And I think that is telling.
1: So how much power do the taxi associations and the taxi owners, because we know a lot of them are politically connected, how much power do they have in terms of lobbying? I mean, if they can get this minister involved in something which really shouldn't be her department at all, how how many friends do they have in high places?
0: Yes, that's a great point. I, I, I think probably the most disconcerting thing this week is how national ministers who are elected to protect the public at large and protect commuters at large have just so quickly fallen in with the arguments of the taxi industry. Uh, similarly, for the to perhaps a lesser degree, but but still the the police minister as well. Similarly, with, with with some figures in the media who have just fallen in with the arguments of the taxi industry and tried to find a way. Actually, this has happened many many uh, interviews that I've done. Try to find a way to blame the city for hmm. violence, blame the city for the burning of of a community clinic in Site C, one of our own clinics in in Site C in Kailicha. This, you know, it's just uh, frankly, a farcical.
1: Well, I mean, the media are always looking for a reason, reason to blame the the city of Cape Town or the Western Cape in general um, and, and hold you to a higher standard than anyone else. Um, we've had similar strikes in Pretoria where another DA mayor is doing his best to try and bring things under control. Uh, why is all of this happening now? I mean, we know that the country is very fractious at the moment. There's quite a lot of of, of economic pressure on people. Uh, we know that, um, you know, there's some people in this country who just assume that an automatic increase uh, is on the cards in certain government departments, for example. But why is it yeah. all happening now? I think it,
0: is, it does definitely relate to how we have turned up the volume on uh, impoundments or turned up the heat, I suppose is the, is the right metaphor, on, on impoundments. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is a relatively recent, probably about a year old, Uh, and we, the, the industry immediately raised concerns with us and objections with us. We set up a, uh, a kind of forum, a a discussion forum called the taxi team to, to discuss those concerns. And that is what they withdrew from last week, Wednesday, I think it was, or Tuesday, uh, you you know, and then, and then decided on the strike. Uh, so, so I think that's the main reason for the timing, but, Mm. uh, but they, they gave us no forewarning of the, of the strike. As you know, it happened in the middle of the day, which I think was a terrible, terrible disservice to...
1: It's, a, it's an illegal strike, and, and you, you've, uh, you've decided to take quite a hard line, and you're going to hold that hard line? Is that right?
0: Undoubtedly. It's, uh, I think yeah. that it's not just about Cape Town as well, Gareth. The, the, if we send the message to people in, the, in South Africa that you can get concessions from government by, uh, by violence... Then we, are, uh, you know, down that path leads only lies only destruction. We have to send the message that uh, you will never get any concession so long as you engage in violence.
1: All right. So you still have the worst mayoral job in the country because you've got lots and lots of people pouring into Cape Town the whole time. How is uh, semi-migration affecting you on on a on a much more general level? And and are you guys equipped infrastructurally and do you have budget to build more infrastructure to accommodate all these people who want to come? to your land of milk and honey, as opposed to places like the Eastern Cape, which are, in Donald Trump's words, shitholes?
0: <laughs> uh, no, we, we are under pressure. Semigration uh, is putting massive pressure on our infrastructure. You'll see that a central plank of my mayoralty thus far has been to hugely accelerate infrastructure investment in the city uh, by many multiples, not just by percentage increases, but by multiples. Uh, this year, we've just finished the the highest expenditure ever recorded by the city on infrastructure. This coming year, the, the financial year we've just started, we will nearly double that. We will double the record. Uh, so we are going big on infrastructure, and it is precisely to prepare the city for the tremendous pressure we have already faced over the last decade. Uh, and that which is, I think, is only accelerating day by day.
1: And what's happening with property prices in Cape Town as a result of this?
0: I've just got some data. I can't uh, share my screen now, but uh, pro- property prices are completely bifurcating from the rest of the country. Um, really? they, are diverging, they are diverging really markedly. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so people are, and it's an important point to make, that people are overall getting uh, wealthier because of a good government in the Western Cape. And of course, people don't necessarily feel wealthier just because their house value is increasing. But mm-hmm. for most families, that is their single most valuable asset, perhaps right. uh, perhaps alongside their, their pension funds. So when, that, when the price of that asset goes up, it does absolutely affect their overall uh, well-being. So th- that's nice to see. Uh, and of course, it, it comes with trouble as well. It means it's very difficult for young people to get onto the property ladder in Cape Town. It's becoming a very expensive place to live. So you've got to keep up with the pressure as well of of trying to make it easier to build more uh, more homes to bring the prices down.
1: And are there any other unforeseen consequences of the strike that have caught even you by surprise? You've got a good team of people there who are hopefully hard at work trying to stem any kind of uh, problems that, that occur. But are there things that have happened that you didn't expect? And are there lessons learned so far in the strike that you will be sure not to have repeated?
0: That's a great question. I, it's been so hectic, I haven't yet had time to properly reflect on lessons, but one that has crossed my mind, and, and uh, this, this might be surprising since I've taken such a strong line the last few days, but I wonder whether it would not have been wiser to take an extremely tough line from the first moment of the strike mm. uh, and, and not even engage in those discussions that we had on Friday afternoon, which they reneged on. Because I get the sense that once you, are, once you are kind of locked into a pattern of, of negotiation, uh, you're expected to make concessions and compromises. And when, in fact, or if, in fact, we had drawn a, a very solid line right at word go and said there will be no concessional compromise so long as the strike persists, uh, never mind the violence, perhaps we would be even in a slightly stronger position than we are now. I feel we're in a a reasonably strong position, but I'll reflect on that lesson and and hopefully apply it for the next time.
1: Uh, And just one last thing, the political consequences of something like this uh, can be unforeseen for a while, but obviously other political parties would have taken their opportunity to have a a swipe at you for being authoritarian and coming down hard on the taxis and, you know a lot of these these people in the, in in the anc certainly have uh, friends and family who own a lot of taxis and are very much enmeshed there i think it is the public of south africa who paid for all those those new taxis isn't it
0: yes, yes it is exactly through the recap we all,
1: we all technically should own a piece of it but it's just something that was taken out of the treasury and given to a bunch of people who, who run taxis
0: Oh, we've had so much jumping on the bandwagon or jumping on the taxi, so to speak, from political parties. But that's, that's completely to be expected, and I assure you does not cause me a mm-hmm. moment's discomfort. Uh, what really causes me discomfort is when I see uh, the, the real uh, strife that, that residents and commuters are going through. Yesterday, I, I went and joined a, a bus that uh, is being escorted. We are busy escorting hundreds of buses around the city so that people can still move safely. And I met a a little old lady traveling from Mitchell's Plain to Easter River on the bus with me who hasn't seen her husband because her husband was visiting her son and they were separated. And they haven't seen each other for three days because uh, there was no public transport. So that's the kind of thing that I I really keep front of mind. I really couldn't care less what, uh, what other political parties are saying. I have to try and always focus on... What what I think is right, uh, and what what the principles at stake are, and then uh, you know try to plan to help people uh, deal with the consequences of this violence and the strike.
1: All right. Well, all I can say is uh, power to you. I hope you get this sorted out for the people of Cape Town. Um, it certainly appears to me that um, you, you've got a lot of public opinion on your side, and uh, I'm, I'm fairly sure that things will be resolved sooner rather than later. Uh, I hope you share that sentiment.
0: <laughs> I do. No, I do think so. I, I'm hoping tonight still. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, secretly hoping we get it done uh, tonight.
1: Holding thumbs, holding thumbs. All right, Jordan, thank you so much for your time. I know you've been very busy. Thanks for talking to us.
0: Great pleasure. Nice to be with you again. CliffCentral.com.